0: Hello, and welcome to Tardigrade Talks. I'm your host, Dr. Jody Samra, and this is a podcast for anyone interested in cultivating greater psychological health, wellness, and resilience. In each episode, I'll share authentic and thought-provoking conversations with inspiring guests, along with evidence-based skills strategies, and approaches you can use to cope with the stresses of life and enhance your personal and workplace resilience. I am so honored and so humbled to introduce you to today's guest, who is a true inspiration in every way imaginable. We are speaking about a very important topic that is so dear to my heart and tragically, that is so relevant to so many. Jitipuni is a survivor of child sexual abuse. And not only is she a survivor, but she has fully embodied the epitome of moving through immense tragedy and pain, and turning adversity into what has become a life calling. She has battled through so many barriers, personal, cultural, and legal, to be able to openly and broadly share her story, which has been documented in the award-winning film Because We Are Girls, as well as her book titled The Silent Stoning, which will be released later in 2021. We'll be talking about the heart-wrenching journey of being a childhood sexual abuse victim, the complexities of navigating and enduring cultural adversity, intense shame and guilt, and a lengthy legal trial, and how holding onto the knowledge of your own truth cultivates resilience and begins the road to healing. Ajithi, thank you so very much for joining us today, and I'm so grateful to be having this very important conversation with you.
1: Aw, thank you for having me.
0: Let's go back to the beginning. You were born in India, and in 1970, when you were just two years old, your father immigrated and set up roots in the small town of Williams Lake, B.C., And a few years later, when you were just five, uh, you, your mom, and siblings followed. Tell me about your early years and life as a first-generation brown girl in this small town of Williams Lake. (laughs)
1: <laughs> um, well, I was young, I was four, so it was different. And um, I didn't know a word of English when I first got here, neither did my sisters. And so slowly we uh, learned um, English and um, just, you know, learned how to kind of integrate into the culture and um, faced a lot of adversity as well, because there was a lot of bullying that, that went on. And um, so there was a sense of not belonging. And um, my dad, uh, he actually made it a big part in our family to take us to the cinema. Back then, um, we had a little theater that used to play a lot of um, Bollywood movies that were made in the, the the 60s and the 70s. And so, dad every Sunday he used to take us um, first to to um, uh, the gordora and then um, as well to the the, the cinema. But um, yeah. It, it It was a fun life and um we played in the snow. We had never seen snow and stuff. So Uh it was it was very it was it was fun growing up and us sisters we we spent a lot of time together with each other. We didn't have very much either. We were um, you know, like you said, an immigrant family. We didn't have very many belongings, we didn't have very many um, you know, clothes and stuff. So some of them were hand-me-downs from um, my um dad's family or some of them were hand-me-downs from our, our friends and stuff. So and uh, not very many toys at all either. So uh.
0: Yeah, so very, very humble, humble beginnings, like like many immigrants. I'm the daughter of immigrant parents as well, and kind of coming to the coveted land, right, of Canada to be able to have and build a beautiful future for for children, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and what um, uh, what did your parents do for a living? My
1: dad worked in the lumber mill. He uh, worked there all his life. And um, my mom started off as a dishwasher, started working for $2 an hour, um, soon after we came to Canada. And uh, she used to wash dishes by hand because the place that she worked at didn't have a dishwasher. It was a Chinese um, restaurant there. And um, she didn't even have the proper shoes. She actually wore her, what my daughters call, shiny shoes, the Punjabi uh, mojas. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what she wore to the first day of work. And she was so happy and elated that she actually got a job. Yeah. I and mean, she worked really hard as a dishwasher all, all her life.
0: Oh, well, 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 you wouldn't know this, but my father was also a mill worker and, and uh, my mom started in a restaurant as a, as a line cook. And that oh. was also her job. So, so yeah, so many uh, commonalities there with our, our immigrant parents and that generation isn't there.
1: Mm-hmm. And they and they worked hard and they worked hard for us.
0: So mm-hmm. absolutely. And you think just creating that beautiful future, right, for their kids, we think the kind of epitome of the dream for the the average immigrant. Um, and do you think what kind of, uh, you know, if I met you when you're five, six years old, uh, w- tell me a little bit about your personality and uh, what kind of kid were you?
1: I was quite shy. I was quite shy, quite scared. I um, the inside, I was a princess. I thought I was, a you know, this Bollywood princess as Bollywood actress. I loved to dance. I'd mimic whatever I I saw on the big cinema, Uh, the cinema screen. I'd come home, and my dad had so much um, music, so we had a lot of records and eight tracks and cassette players, so I'd play uh, play the, the, the record and then I'd dance to my heart's delight and I'd pretend that um our, our my blanket, this kissy that we had, an Indian blanket in our household, was was my sorry. It was my mm-hmm. goggler. And I wore my mom's um gold jewelry and um would place her earrings on my uh, forehead, right? Up up and my hairline, pretending it was a tikka, because yeah. mom never had one. And and um I lived in that imaginary world and it was it was fabulous it was amazing and i could reach whatever heights i wanted to in my mind it was as if i was um you know in in those scenic um scenes that they showed in the movies and the mountains and the in the green luscious fields here and there and the flowers and it, uh, yeah
0: it, it yeah was, that, that the the dream right of as you said kind of inside a princess and i could just picture you spinning around in your your colorful clothes and of course your your passion for fashion and design which later became a career was sounds like that was instilled very early in you Mm -hmm. yes that's what I mimicked in my
1: designs as well um you know as as life moved forward and I started to sew
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh you know if I met you back then and said what the heck are you going to be doing when you when you get when you grow up what would you have said to me back then oh (laughs)
1: I would have said I would be a Bollywood actress. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's to my heart's delight. Yeah.
0: Oh, the good old Bollywood movies. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And I'd be in these beautiful silks and these luscious fabrics and jewelry. Oh, yes. All the, the files, you know, the anklets. That would be me.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what does every little girl want to do, right? Grow up, fall in love and... and be treated like a princess, right? Isn't that the kind of heart of a dream (laughs) that so many of us have? Shy. Uh, so tell me, it's hard for me to, to picture right now, but tell me a little bit about that personality piece. Well,
1: I never used to talk. Um, People would ask me questions and I'd kind of just hide uh, behind my mom or my dad. I remember when the principal, um, the the school was right across the street from our house and the principal was asking me questions um, in English. And I was just too shy to even answer back, even though uh, by then I could answer her. And um, I mean, that resulted in them not taking me into that school. And then I had to be bused to a school of, you know, three or four miles out of town, but um, I just couldn't. I, I was just so super scared. And I don't know what I was afraid of, but I just had this uh, this fear inside and this shyness inside. And then people also growing up called me uh, beautiful. Oh, your daughter is so beautiful. I heard that so many times. And again, I was just so shy and i just hide behind my mom. Um, It was, it was just a part of me growing up and you're right now if someone saw me,
0: (laughs) it's when, When, you know, when you look back and think, when, when did you start to kind of grow into yourself and come out of your shell was, how, how did that evolve? Um, more through
1: just me, um, you know, doing my dancing, following my creativity. I wanted to sew. I wanted to create all these designs that I saw in the films. And uh, back then we couldn't go to a store to, to buy us a Larcomese or anything. Right. So we'd have to make it in our, in our homes. So just wanting to, to, um create those designs and um wear them and create them for my sisters and stuff that built my confidence um slowly bit by bit by bit as well as excelling in school playing sports so growing up i played in every uh, every sport imaginable and um in in, including high school and that built confidence and having good grades i had a friend Mm. who was very smart and she was an a student so i always strive to um do well in school and, um, and my dad, I mean, obviously wanted me to do well. Uh, I was the first Poonie to actually go to university, the first oh. female in, in my family to, to get a degree. So just following that from that, what came from inside, um, my passion, my desires—that led me to build confidence,
0: and um, here I am today. <laughs> yeah, and, and very kind of very simple upbringing, right? And if you think of the the values that most kind of defined your family home, right, when you were little, what what were the pieces that your parents and and family most valued?
1: Well. <sighs> of all family first and foremost it was family and my parents um they came here they settled and their immediate goal was was to how else can they help their family so how can they help Mm -hmm. other um, family members immigrate to canada so they started fulfilling that goal bringing other members in and allowing them to obviously stay with us and live with us so they fed them sheltered them and they taught them the ways uh of of the western culture and how to um, um build a home here and get a job and a driver's license you name it brush your teeth use the toilet like everything mm. they think they, they it wasn't just one person that came into our household um from india there were there there were many so my mom wanted her sisters to come my dad wanted you know his family members to come so from both sides of of the family we were we learnt um, by witnessing that that family is um, very important and at at that young age you kind of learn that your voice doesn't matter right and also the way my dad um, his his the way he um, raised us through uh, obedience and uh, physical punishment Um, we learned very early on my sisters and I that um it's best to be obedient and um, physical punishments obviously hurt <laughs> mm-hmm. and to quash your own voice and um, kind of go along what's good for the good of the family. Right. So you as an individual, don't really exist and your voice doesn't exist. And that was taught not through just our family, but the Bollywood movies that we saw as well.
0: Yeah, so a very very common experience in in many ways for many, many immigrants from very backgrounds, of course, South Asian, right, that kind of collectivist approach that you're kind of, we are greater than our individual selves, right, and all of that kind of sacrifice for family. And again, I think a very common experience that many South Asian immigrants can relate to of um, kind of sponsoring family members to be able to have that coveted opportunity to come to Canada. Um, talk about some of the, you know, is we of course share being from um, a Punjabi background. And if we think of, we think of those Bollywood films and other kind of media and, and um, I guess, all of the expectations that we have within our culture. Um, talk a little bit about that and you, some of the the things that were instilled in you about respect for elders, respect for men in particular, that obedience piece that you touched on.
1: Well, that was modeled in our family um, by um, by the way my dad wanted um, us to behave, us girls, right? So it started, like I said, very early on. And um, my dad was 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 the breadwinner. So, I mean, I watched my mom um, also, you know, do a lot of stuff around the house and hold an outside job. And um, she not just cooked and cleaned and, you know, everything else, but my dad, made a lot of decisions and uh, we lived with our uncle as well. So it was the males that um, it seemed that were making big, large decisions. And then I did also see my mom be this you know, roaring voice. If she didn't like anything, she mm. spoke up. But for us children, we weren't allowed to speak up. And um we saw that,, um, you know, modeled even through when you go to the temple, right? That um, women sit here, men sit here, and it's the men that run the committee. So th- there's that hierarchy that you're actually just born into. <laughs> and and you get used to things just just being that way. So, um, and then my grandpa, who lived in India, he wanted to build land. So my dad obviously could never say no to him. And it was like this, this like I said, this hierarchy that you respect and bow down to. And so my dad would always, um, you know, respect him
0: as well. But um, yeah, so these like, expectations, right, that we build that are, I mean, some explicit and some, implicit and embedded in every which way, right? From our temples to the movies to, I mean, every which way that we just learn this is the way the world is, don't we? Well, and and
1: men eat first, right? So in in our home, what's modeled is mom would cook, right? And and, and then the men eat eat first. You go to other families, the men are served first. Um, It still happens today, right? I I talk about it where I've witnessed um, uh, men are served in these beautiful china plates right mm-hmm. and then the women on the other hand are served in um the the paper plates and the paper spoons and the paper knives and they sit on the floor while the men get the chair so mm-hmm. just even walking into an indian home back then and even now many times i i witness like the, the 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 seating is all taken up by the men and the women yeah. and the children kind of have to fend for themselves wherever they can Find a spot, whether it's on the floor, right, or whether it's sitting on on the on the hearth, right? Um, yeah,
0: and, and stunning, isn't it that we we? I mean, to a lesser degree now, but certainly still quite pervasive and and quite pervasive. Um, those expectations, um, you know, particularly from um, those that are more recent immigrants. There's this very kind of ingrained very ingrained difference in how men and women and the power that they hold, right? That's what you're talking about. The, oh, yes. it was the men that made the decisions, the men that were on the committees. It was the decision-making, um, not just decision-making ability, but the power that was held is um, very impactful, isn't it? And I imagine, of course, back then as a young girl, we don't see all of the layers of how that can impact so many parts of our life
1: and even when my brother was born right so um he was treated so differently than us girls how we were being treated he got everything mm. <laughs> and and he he was spoiled right growing up and stuff and um we 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 were different we had to be more responsible and we had to be more obedient and we had to be um uh, less vocal we weren't allowed to be vocal And I remember my my dad um, growing up, a lot of time it's like, you know, he's got his furrowed eyebrows every time he'd look at us and he'd Mm -hmm. um, tell us through some of our punishments, like, we cannot look at him in the eye like lower your gaze, he would say. So he'd line us three sisters up and he'd expect us to lower our gaze. And then um, my sister, Kira, she's the one who's two years younger than me. She was the, the more revunctious one. She, she'd kept on looking up at him. And it's <laughs> like, oh no, you're going to get even more trouble, right? Yeah. But, um, it's just uh, how how boys are raised, how men are treated the minute they walk through the house. It's, it's I can't even begin to tell you that um, you know, what what it what it's like um, growing up and not even realizing that's that's what that's what's happening. So now, I mean obviously I'm nauseated by it. Yeah <laughs> but growing up in it, it's like that's
0: so it's normal and it's yes. not questioned
1: or, or talked about.
0: And it's interesting because there's this, you know, even as children, right, the, the picture you're giving of your your younger sister that, you know, we kind of know this is the only life we know, yet intuitively we also know that this is not right, right, but yet don't have words or language or that power to even be able to articulate or identify that. now if we shift i mean so here you are in a you know growing up in a small town and kind of this revolving door of of relatives coming and going And and in 1980 when you were 12 years old um your life fundamentally changed Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. i'll never forget that it was um mid-october ish and um, my family was leaving to india and i was um Uh, left behind with my um, aunt and uncles and um, yeah I there was a cousin that uh, had immigrated from from India he was my dad's sister's son and he was almost ten years older than me a good nine nine and a half years older than myself so I was just uh, shy of my 12th birthday and um, about a month shy and Yes, so he, he, yeah. I went through some sexual abuse. It was actually, you know, um, I was raped. And um, from then on, um, things changed for me without me even realizing and knowing that uh, my life has changed or something inside me has had changed.
0: My goodness. And uh, I mean, at what, at what point did you have a realization of how wrong this was?
1: Well, initially I didn't know. I didn't even know what was happening, what was happening to me or what was he was doing to me and I didn't even know my body parts because <laughs> um, sex education is not what's discussed in the family. And My mother never had that talk with me. And. Um, um and the little attempt that was later made in school, like it, it just didn't make sense. Um I couldn't I couldn't put the pieces together that um this is what happens with people's body parts and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So I didn't realize exactly what was happening to me and um until uh, I think it was the summer um before grade nine. So right around grade eight, grade nine. Um That's when I realized that, oh my gosh, okay, this is what he's doing to me. And uh, this is what's happening. This is what it's called. Um, And people actually enjoy it. It was a profound moment for me when I discovered that.
0: Yeah, what, I mean, what did you do when it kind of clicked? Because like many, like many, if not all, childhood sexual abuse victims, uh, there's a relationship, first of all, with the perpetrator, right? The vast majority of cases, um, there's a relationship that exists, right? Familial or otherwise. Um, and as you've well put, just this lack of an understanding, right? When when you don't even know what sex is, and certainly in a conservative South Asian family, have nobody has spoken about sex and what's appropriate and not appropriate and, and all of the kind of gradients in between. Um, and so what did you do when you had that that moment of realizing this is wrong? <sighs> Well, by then it's too late,
1: and because um, by then it's happened—you know—it had happened to me hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times by then, and um, and it was normalized. And um, I talk about it more in my book um, that I wrote, like the the in depth of this whole grooming process, and how one um, um, you accept it, you accept what's happening to you, and you, there's no way out of it. So you accept it and you believe what um, this person's telling you um that it's love that it's um you know something you're supposed to be doing it's something that um I actually had a part in as well, right? So whatever he's feeding, uh, he he was feeding me, I believed it. And then obviously it's too late, it's being done and you have a hand in it and then you carry forward from there um, with with life and whatever kind of a relationship um, this was.
0: We know when we look at the dynamics of child sexual abuse, how vastly different they are from adult sexual abuse. Um, in particular, we know children rarely disclose a sexual abuse immediately. Uh, we know that 95% of kids are abused by someone that they know and trust um, and physical force and violence is rarely used, but rather it's manipulation, right, of trust and secrecy and and. Uh, telling these stories that a child starts to believe because we're taught and told to believe that which others, especially men, especially older men tell us. Um, do, you, do you remember when you first spoke to somebody else about what was happening? Uh, well, something like this
1: is never easy to, to disclose because there's a lot of shame and blame And I know when I first um, sat down with my family, um, my parents, and um, that moment came in my life that I had to tell them, there was a lot that I had to put aside and uh, not think about. So I didn't think about the consequences. First. When that moment came in my life in 2006 that I was going to tell my husband uh, first and foremost, um, I didn't think about any consequences, that he could leave me, that he could take my child away from me, that I could just lose this life that I have. I just knew that it's something um, that I had to, to... to do that knowingness that came from inside just just tell the truth and then i i I told the truth at that time and it's it's interesting because i know if i had thought about the consequences when i look back then i would never have even opened my mouth because That's what kept me quiet in the first place, right? That you're gonna be shamed. When I was 12, 13, 14, 15, growing up, I never told my parents because I knew I was going to be punished. I knew I would be shipped off to India. I knew my head would be chopped off. So all those things that kept me quiet then, Fast forward in 2006, it's um, it's something I didn't even think about. And um, just telling my truth was uh, so much, um, that feeling was so much bigger and larger inside that that's what I went with, with that knowingness. And also, I was a mother, so I wanted to protect my daughter. And um, by then, I had uh, witnessed something that told me that this person is still uh, abusing um other girls that's what i felt and i h- had that moment where okay you think it's just you know happened to you and that's it but 25 years later when you you know think it's still happening to someone else it's like holy shit you have to do something about this right
0: yeah, so that was that pivot moment for you having this recognition. So, of course, we fast forward, you're an adult, you're a wife, you're a mom, you have your own mm-hmm. daughter, mm-hmm. and you start to then have, I mean, this experience, which I mean, how do you ever forget about it? You just shelve it away, right? You sweep it under, sweep it under, sweep it under, and then you had concern of somebody else that precipitates you to share this with your husband. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> And how did he respond? I mean, how did how did that first conversation go? How how did he respond? What did he say?
1: a mess on my living room floor. Um, I had just um, received this call from um, the uh, perpetrator's um, sister actually and um, there were some horrible things that were said about me and my sisters and um, how you know it's something that I that I wanted and all this stuff like just horrible stuff and I, at that moment is when the shift happened in my brain that, oh my gosh, you know, it's, that's not the, that's not the truth. This is the truth and I have to tell my truth. People have it all wrong. Um, They're blaming, you know, me and my sisters as if these weird, you know, these corny, sexual, I don't know, monsters. (laughs) And, and it's the other way around, right? So I, um, I, it wasn't easy telling my husband. I I, I I knew I had to tell him, and his reaction to initially was to hug me and to hold me, and I was crying hysterically. And then, um, then he needed time to process. So he became distant and um, just within himself. Uh, see, because in, in 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 the brown culture, in the Indian culture, there's. There's nowhere, even as a male, that you can go and say, hey, um, this is what's happened. How do I deal with this? You don't talk about it with your brother. You don't talk about it like he didn't go and talk about it with my dad or anything, right? So he had to go through his own emotional process to figure it all out, right?
0: Yeah, very alone, right? And so much, we think of how pervasive the shame and stigma and the silencing really right and and I've yeah I mean you've talked about um when you were young seeing other girls that were sent away and back to India if their parents ever got wind of any indiscretion right and so you learn to keep your mouth shut you're going to be blamed don't say anything and and I appreciate you bringing up your your husband's reaction because I think it's often often You know, we don't recognize the ripple effect that disclosure has on everybody connected to you, right? And that, and when there's not a culture or community where there can be healthy, open dialogue, someone to go to, get advice from, try and process that which is nonsensical in every which way that... that you know, that must have been an immensely difficult time because here you are finally getting the courage to speak open and then, of course, start to, you know, your husband starts to go through his very natural journey of processing and distance. And so tell me about what that looked like in those, you know, especially those first few weeks and months for you as a family.
1: Well, he had a hard time looking at me in the eye for the first, I would say, two to four months. And um he, like... He was trying to process it from his upbringing, right? However, he's brought up about um, something like this. And as you know, the blame usually lies on the female, right? That the girl must have wanted it or she's done something wrong or she's a sex maniac or a nympho or, or whatever else, right? So, um, I'm, I, I mean, he didn't say anything to me that was um, negative or, or derogatory in any way. He just re- retreated. You know, shut down um, within himself, and and I gave him his space. I gave him his space, and uh, mm-hmm. we obviously we we still lived together, we still did things together, we had a daughter together, so we were still a family, and it I I think it took a good um, few years to feel like normal again um we were I mean you know we we love each other and I think it's that love that bond that um that unspoken bond that exists between us that we were able to um overcome it and um after so many years you know even even still be here uh with more love and even even more stronger but it 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 definitely was hard for him and on the other hand me going through that that holy my husband's withdrawn holy shit I need him the most now mm-hmm. so I went into my wound
0: <laughs> absolutely and then you start to have all this kind of the snowball effect of all these other elements right and and as you said if I knew then what the consequences would be yeah. and you didn't quite say it but the but statement is maybe I would have not been spoken Right. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, now also at this time, so you're managing, you know, all the things that go through your own head and heart as a victim and trying to make sense of it's. A, it's almost as if things feel more real once you say them right out loud and it's out there and you're speaking about it and. Um, you are a small business owner. And so you're also launching, you were launching a boutique that then evolved into a design company at the same time. And I mean, just through those first couple of years, how did you maintain your sanity? Oh,
1: well, I knew I wasn't normal. Like when that phone call came to me back in 2006 and I disclosed to my husband and my family, this horrible secret, um, I knew my, my brain wasn't normal. I wasn't, it, it didn't feel normal inside. I actually sought therapy right away. That's the first thing I did. And then from that point, as I started uh, feeling better inside about myself and started to um, uh, connect with that knowingness that I'm not to blame, it's not my shame, right? Um, speaking my truth that this is the, this is the truth no matter what. Um, no matter what anyone else says about me. I started moving forward with that. And um, the, there was an expectation from my sisters and, and us, once we disclosed this to, to our parents, that um, they would do something about this. And in the Indian culture, they usually gather the elders, you know, and then they sit down, um, the, the person, the perpetrator, and, you know, they would ask ask him or at least confront him. And um, who are you to do this to our daughters type thing, right? That never happened. So that was a huge disappointment. And when that didn't happen, um, then I okay I have to go to the police because how do you stop this person from harming others and then I decided to go to the police and my sister Kira had always wanted to, to do that so um, and my sister Slakshna, followed suit as well so us three we uh, gave a police report and then we had a I have a cousin um, as well who also gave a police report and um,
0: there yeah, was so of kind of abandoned. and at what point um did you and your sisters realize that that all three of you were victims? When we told our
1: parents, mm-hmm. um, that's when all of my family and um uh, us all of us siblings realized that it had happened to um like all of us. Um, some of us didn't know. I knew a little earlier on and um, but my older sister and my parents and all them um, and some of my other siblings they didn't know until we sat down with our parents.
0: Did you did your parents believe you when you first told
1: oh, them? Oh yes, there was no question. Yeah. My dad was crying. My my dad, you know, he had his shoulders were slumped. He he cried, my uncle cried, my my mom was sitting there. Um, it was it was a very emotional evening we drove down to Williams Lake to tell them actually mm. so my brother drove us down and um, everybody like it was emotional for everyone and from that um, a disclosure came out that oh they're going to do something about this. They're going to hold him accountable and they're going to you know, sit down like the elders are going to sit down with him. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what was supposed to happen. So uh, my dad made the phone call to, to his family right in, in Edmonton that um, we're going to sit down and, and discuss this and um, question him. And then. Uh, that was it that's where it was left and then the fingers start getting turned around and then the blame starts
0: coming on the girls right right right. and we think of the the Bollywood movies right the rape victim that that jumps off the cliff to her suicide because that's the only option for someone that's been affected
1: hmm. Mm-hmm. And then how do you live with that shame? And, yeah. you know, you're like in my in my case, I always felt even growing up as a teenager that I'm the one who's um, dishonored. Right. Mm-hmm. So how do you even move forward in carving a, a beautiful life uh, carrying all that shame? So it's a lot of pressure. It's 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 there's a lot of suffering I- involved. And there was a lot of suffering that night that we disclosed um, this to our parents because then, I mean, now they're suffer- they were suffering even more so, right? Yeah, even though there are red flags here and there along the way, and I don't know if they just ignored them or whatever their thought process was. But um, my dad comes from um, the belief that, um, you shouldn't be sitting beside him right so therefore it's your fault because well we know
0: that land of the the land of denial right is 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 um it's a very powerful psychological defense that that we all have to to not see things even when signs may be there however subtle or big and and when there isn't really even that frame or cultural understanding to be willing to see things in a different way than how we've been raised or our culture has told us. And, um, and it's,
1: oh, and it protects the, the the male. The culture protects the males, right? So I, I get, you know, why dads like, oh, you have some responsibility in this too, because it's just unfathomable, that, you know, it, it's ingrained inside them um, that uh, males are great. So you, and you don't blame males; it's it's the female that's to blame. So how do you go against this? wiring of your brain, right?
0: it's interesting with, I mean, it's so pervasive, I think, across all cultures, but particularly for South Asian cultures that, you know, what is not understood about child sexual abuse is that it's abuse. It's not about the sex, right? It's about that power and control and abuse. And there gets this very muddled, Confusing association with sexuality, which is just such a tremendous tremendous barrier, right and continues to be for so many um, To speak openly and so so you then of course started to take um, legal steps Um, You are still in the midst of what has become a very convoluted complex legal journey, you know one of the things we know I've worked with many many victims over the years and and I feel sad to say that you know one of the things that's often discussed in the therapy room is is going through that legal route even going to be emotionally worth it right because we know the vast majority of cases are thrown out we know of course we don't have witnesses in the same way that we do for other crimes we know you know, recall is um, mixed and spotty for little ones. Of course it is. We know that when we're exposed to trauma, we don't recall every ounce of what allows the right thing to be done legally. Tell me about just the the roller coaster of emotions you must have had as you just went through a decade plus journey with the legal system.
1: Yeah, it's um, 2007, we gave our police report. So now it's going on to 13 years. Um, it was, uh, it was, uh, oh, I can't even begin to, I didn't know where to begin because I, I was so um, emotionally um, just all wonky and, um, when I first um, wanted to do something about this back then right and um, thank goodness therapy helped and I was able to come to a resourceful state where I can um, uh, quiet myself down internally and um, go into the police station and give my um, report but even even that is it's not an easy process. They put you in the same room where all these other criminals sit and it's a tiny little dingy room mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and you're being questioned and you're being questioned on, um, you know, your memory and you're being questioned on um, like, it's as if I felt like, okay, am I going to be thought of as the liar? Cause that's what, one is always thought of, right? So does the police think I'm lying?
0: And um, getting past yeah, that. re-victimization, that- right? That we often hear that, that the criminal justice system re-victimizes, um, especially childhood sexual abuse victims, because it is as if you're on trial, right? You're feeling like, am I part of the accused here that's sitting in this cubicle kind of on, you know, literally or figuratively on trial, trying to explain and describe what happened?
1: Yeah, and it, it, it's not made, like, it's not a pleasant environment that you walk into. It's not like, um, you know, like you walk into a beautiful, decorated room where you're going to get a nice, comfortable chair to sit on. You get what the other criminals get, right? <laughs> that uh, same table, that same chair and a tiny little dingy room, which is very claustrophobic. And um, just like one sees in the, in the films and the movies. But um, I, I think, um, like, going through a process like that, one has to be internally 100% connected to themselves and to their truth. So it doesn't matter if the police believes you or not. It doesn't matter if um, you go on the stand and the defense lawyer shreds you to pieces. It hurts, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of emotions, there's a lot of fear and um, I think people also need to realize that um, when you're going through this process, so many times you are in your wound. I was in my wound. I was that little girl that was hurt and um, went through a lot of trauma. So I think that's what gets lost, that when you're, you're, you're sitting in the, the courtroom or the, when police are questioning you, they see you as this adult and they see you as um, a, a well-educated woman, but they don't see that, okay, holy, Jiti has regressed to be that 11-year-old mm. again. And she's cool. stuck in that trauma at this very moment, right?
0: So, yeah. Yeah. What, what were the things that you drew on during those those hardest moments, um, kind of three, and there would be so many, I can imagine, but when you think what, got you up in the morning, what kept you persevering, what kept you holding on to that truth that you knew inside?
1: I had made a connection with that little girl inside me. Um, My therapist had taken me through this exercise and there's this, I call it little Jithi right? So I was able to connect to that 11 year old and um, I, I had her in my mind. I had my own daughter. At that time, my daughter was, uh, my older one was six, so I had her and I had my sisters. At any time I'd look around, I mean, my sisters were always around me and we were going through this same process. Um, we spent a lot of time with each other and I'd see their faces and I'd see the, the, the stress and the trauma on their faces, even though I didn't see it on mine every day. And that further fueled me to uh, do more. Right. So having this connection with myself, having the, you know, obviously having my own daughter and my sisters around and the knowingness that this person is still going to be doing this to other people, other girls. It just fueled me to do more and more and more and to wake up every day to call the police when they weren't calling me back. Hmm. Um, Three years our file sat with the police from 2007 to 2000, uh, end of 10, I think it was.
0: Wow, and so just advocating for yourself and pushing and not yes. not persevering, right? The true definition of the, that word of persevering and, and taking charge, getting control, right, yeah, finally. And-
1: yeah, and and and, and you having to do something about it yourself every single day. So finally, the police takes your statements. Okay, they don't do anything about it. Finally, somebody decides to look at your file because you've pestered them three, you know, three years later, and then it goes to court, and then we have this defense that wants to just delay the 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 shit out of this court case so we don't get preliminary dates until two years later the guy was charged in 2011 and then we get prelim dates um, for the preliminary hearing 2013 and then finally we get preliminary we go through that process and then court dates aren't set for 2015 or something uh, for the supreme court trial and then it's like a gong show um, one one thing after another delay after delay adjournment after adjournment that are granted to the defense it just it and and i and i said so many times to the, the prosecutor like this is like a joke right yeah. i mean it's not it's not a joking matter the mm-hmm. seriousness of this and the offense itself is not a joking matter but how it's playing out there is it's a, like a you know it's a slap in the face and it's know, a-
0: absolutely and it's so demoralizing and one of the biggest reasons people don't ever proceed with legal steps is is knowing how broken our system is when it comes to particularly sexual offenses To the to the legal proceedings, you and your sisters turned your story and had it documented in a beautifully poignant poignant documentary called "Because We Are Girls," which I had the pleasure of seeing at your screening a year and a half ago. And so, tell me, Juthi, how did that project come to be, and how was it that you? Had the courage to take what is such a personal experience um, and turn it into something that now has gotten a massive life of its own.
1: Well, in 2006 when I broke my silence, I, I remember this moment where I looked at Gita um, it was, it was around the time when parents didn't do anything about it and everybody was busy blaming us girls, especially me. And I looked at her and I said, this is my documentary. I'm going to make a documentary on this. And she said, you should. Prior to that, I thought I was going to be this, you know, huge fashion designer, you know, mm. <laughs> you know the likes of um, Valentino and Galliano and all that, right? And then life has it that this this truth comes out and this silence is broken, and then it just switched. In, in how I saw myself and my life and it's like this is the story that has to be told and I knew how much suffering that I had endured and my sisters had endured um, to the point where actually uh, I did mention this earlier where I tried to kill myself in, in, in my late um, adult uh, early adulthood when I was 22 mm. so so it's like there was so much suffering and um, this story had to be told because I knew there were other girls suffering out there just like myself and um and so I, it was I, that I, vision
0: I, of helping others that that really propelled you
1: yes helping others this vision of um just uh how to uh, like my mom She's never said anything, but you know, I look at my mom and I wonder what's her story. My grandma. So there's just so much suffering in 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 the female um, line in in our in our um, culture. So I wanted to just um, make this film so this story gets told. So. Um, I knew others would be able to relate and that this is not just our story. This is the story of our culture. It, it's a story in countless homes. And I'm, I think every home is touched by this story. Um, That's just how, how, um, how much abuse exists in our culture, right? Mm-hmm. Cause it's not talked about cause it's buried so deep um, underneath. And um, I just knew, and I followed that knowingness that came and then bit by bit, I took the steps to meet with the film board, and I uh, met the producer, and I told him, uh, here's my story, I wrote it on a tiny little piece of paper, and I handed it Mm. to him. And he's like, "Um, basically, have you talked to your husband? (laughs) 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 And um, yeah, so then they took the project on, and then um, a friend of mine, uh, Baljeet Sanger, was brought on on as a director about a year and a half later. So yeah, the proposal I wrote got passed. It was just fantastic. So
0: um, yeah, and it was as you said, bit by bit, right? And isn't it? I imagine bit. you had many, many, many days where it was. I mean, it's that one step in front of another, right? Get through this moment. Get through the next moment. Get through this day. Get through this week. Um, and and I imagine that that was something that you had to keep telling yourself again and again and again at times. Uh, So many
1: times I wanted to yell and scream. And so many times I was so angry because our court dates would just get pushed. Like we'd pack up and go all the way to Williams Lake and then we'd be sent back um, because, oh, court's adjourned because now the defense wants to do this or whatever. And they actually, in 2015, the dates that we were supposed to testify, what what happened there was (laughs) at the last minute, I think about a month before trial or something. the, the defense asked for our counseling records.
0: Mm. So then
1: that became a huge process. And we actually had to spend our own money to defend our own counseling records. Wow. So there's financial costs. And it's, it's, yeah. it's like you, emotionally, you're, you're challenged, you're tested um, every single day. Like going through a process like this through the, the justice system, Emotionally, one has to um, make sure that um, they have an outlet, that they have support, whether that support comes from, um, you know, like my case, I have my sisters, or my therapist, or you know, if you you need friends, you you need a whole support system around you, so that when you get so emotionally charged with um, rage and anger that you can actually get through it. And one thing I want to say, um, I have to commend Ms. Julie Dufour, who is our prosecutor. She was a great, uh, Great source for me as well. I was able to um, call her office, and whatever clarifications I needed, she was able to to give me all those. And uh, she took out time to speak to me um, whenever I needed and hear how upset I was.
0: Right? Yeah. And what's your, what is your advice to, I mean, so many that you know. Of course, every which way in the legal system, from the legal assistant to the lawyer to the you know um, the police officer to the admin at the police station and at court what is what is the advice you have to everybody that that works with through the course of their job victims of childhood sexual abuse
1: well I think first and foremost I think it's important for everyone to heal them their own selves Mm. (laughs) heal their own wounds um so when you have something like this, uh, come forward, like, uh, abuse, um, and you're taking statements, uh, you can't be rolling your eyes or you can't be <clears throat> clearing your throat every few minutes. Mm. That, you know, I know you're nervous and I know this is uncomfortable for you, but I have to tell you myself. Yeah, right. You're like,
0: hold on right? a little more uncomfortable for yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. So, um,
1: and not and not just like like the physical demeanor aspect. I think it's also um, just uh, genuinely having that intention of um, hearing the the person. So, if I'm talking to a police officer or if I'm talking to the prosecutor, um, it. It's just so important that they hear what I have to convey. Um,
0: yeah, so being present and being present and as you're speaking, I'm thinking being emotionally intelligent, right? Having that self-awareness of, of your own emotions and having that ability to be able to kind of really be present and, and strive to understand. And understand that this is a brutal process and um, that um,
1: as I'm telling you the details of my gory life, uh, that it's it's not easy for me and it's going to come out in ways. And I I noticed myself um, talking in ways as if I was a little child. So. Mm. I am regressed and it, it would be great if they would notice that oh okay you know this isn't the adult Jiti here that um, is talking right now she's you know stuck back in her in her trauma in her wound. Um, also uh, the body language so how they position themselves mm. and, and the court clerks um, we, well, I remember walking into the courtroom you wanted a certain court clerk and not the other one because the other one would just you know throw the papers this way and that way
0: uh, yeah and those you know those subtle things <laughs> that we might think are irrelevant actions or things that we do without thought are very impactful when you know you have so many i mean thousands of thoughts floating around in your brain and emotions and fears and all of all of what comes along with going through that journey and and you know these matter right that nonverbal the look the sigh the cough the all of those things matter um, so much as you're moving through that very difficult process. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and not to be treated like a number, like my, mm-hmm. I wasn't a case number. So to the police, to um, our prosecutor, to uh, all the, the victim support workers, I I, I, I want to send that message out there, um, even to, um, you know, the, the judge, judges and all that, that we're just not just you know, this, this case number, um, we are actual human beings that horrible things have, have happened to. And, um, but we're judged. And and that's how it is. The minute you walk into the courtroom, you're judged on the way you're, you appear, on the way you shake your head, your verbals, non-verbals, right? And then how you testify. So it's defense's job to bulldoze you. Um, it's it's that's that's what they get paid for mm-hmm. is to to twist the story. And um, it's it's painful to sit through this process. I was on, on the stand for, for five days. Wow. And I haven't killed anyone. Right. And, um, I'm the one who's had all this stuff done to, and in the end, I'll never forget it was five days and, uh, yeah but and then that's not just the prelim process there's also the, like there's there's two different processes one is the 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 discovery the prelim and then the other is the actual trial so you're traumatized and re-traumatized by telling your story like 50 million times, first mm-hmm. to the police you repeat it. Then you um, have to study it yourself. And then there's stuff that has to be cal- clarified through the prosecution prosecutor's office. And then there's stuff, you know, through the, the prelim that you're asked. And then, um, so you re- re- re-traumatize yourself, like I can't even tell you how many times through the whole process.
0: I think is so unknown and un and unfamiliar to the average person on you know those consequences that you spoke about right so mm-hmm. unexpected unpredictable all of the I don't want to say little pieces but all of those things that need to be done to get the wheels in motion to even have your story heard right to get on that stand for those five days um, and I think there's such an under Awareness or appreciation of how much that requires emotionally, physically, financially, and 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 requiring you to draw on every ounce of every resource that you could, you know, draw on. I imagine right individually your social support system. Um, there's in the film there's this beautiful, emotional, sad, heartbreaking scene when you sit down and you have this authentic conversation with your parents mm-hmm. you confront them about why there was no support tell me about that moment well
1: we knew that um that was going to happen there is going to be a confrontation with the parents like a sit down and um and it was well needed for the film too because they're I mean they have their own perspective and we have their own our own perspective right so we did get to to the the tea scene beautifully displays that that we got to sit down and ask them um well hey dad you know you didn't support mom you didn't support and that's what we had felt through this trial our parents weren't around um we sisters us three sisters uh Would ourselves take ourselves to Williams Lake back and forth, back and forth. And um, over the years. And even initially, when we first gave our police statements in 2007, we didn't tell our parents because there's always that factor that someone's going to go. Tip off the accused, and he could take off to India, right? Mm-hmm. So, and and our parents didn't um, didn't show any support. So why would we tell them, anyways? And then finally, it was around uh, I think two thousand and ten, end of two thousand and ten, beginning of uh, two thousand and eleven, is when the police was going to take their statements. So that's when we told our parents that, oh, by the way, you know, we gave our statements years ago, and they're going to take your statements. So. Um, We had always felt that what's a parent's job, right? I as a parent have felt what's my job. My job is to protect my daughter, my job is to hear my daughter, my job is to love my daughter. My job is not to blame my daughter. Mm -hmm. So whatever experiences come um, in my child's way, I will love her regardless. So We wanted to sit down. I wanted to sit down and um, be able to ask dad that question and my mom that question. And then they beautifully went on camera and um, expressed their thoughts. And their thoughts overall was, Oh, we did support you. You just don't see it. Hmm. And their thoughts overall was, Well, dad said you have responsibility, right? I told you not to sit beside him. And so you're responsible too. And then mom went and said, "Um, Well, uh, I'm sorry, she said at the end, and uh, we didn't do as much as we should have,
0: right? Mm. Um, was, that, was that cathartic for you to have that moment with them?
1: They had known how we felt about it. It was, you know, um, I think it was really, for me, it was really nice that us three sisters were there at the same time, and my brother was there, and whatever someone had to say about it. Like I knew once my sister Kira opened her mouth, there's no stopping her.
0: <laughs> <I> <laughs> we always she- need one of those in our family, don't yeah. we?
1: <laughs> she's going to go into her, you know, uh, just she's going to not um, have any problem sharing what she wants to share. And of course her anger is going to come out, right? So um, it, it was really beautiful to see that my parents were able to express their opinion views and we were able to share ours without it getting too hostile.
0: Mm-hmm. Usually
1: my dad would just normally get up and walk away. Right. So yep. the, the camera was rolling. So he sat there. <laughs> Or the film so, crew.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was a a, for, a yeah. forced uh, exposure, wasn't it, for him?
1: <laughs> yeah, so so the, the, the film crew was there, so he had to sit there, and <sighs> he sat there and had the whole conversation. Mm-hmm. What I loved about it was um, how my sister Kita was able to be so articulate and said exactly what she needed to say mm-hmm. and have her um, tears, have her tears go to that place where it really, really, really hurts and have those tears. Because as as human beings, we suppress our feelings. Mm we don't want to go there. So what you don't, um, you know, what you depress will express and manifest in other ways in your life. Right.
0: Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I, you know that more than anyone else, like as whatever disease or, you know, however it manifests in your life in a horrible way. So it was really nice for me to see, um, after the fact that Gita had her process and she had her moment with, with the parents mm-hmm. and, um, and my older sister, i I mean, I, I love her to death. and she 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 said what needed to be said at that moment, too, which is how boys are treated like God,
0: yeah. yeah well, and we we go to the title, right? So such a beautiful, beautifully titled film because we are girls. Now, this film from the the short year and a half ago when you had the first screening has been, shown, picked up by, I mean, many, many, many cities across the world and uh, recently got picked up by Amazon Prime. And so, you know, you and your sisters have been described as having started a revolution, right? And we think of, you know, the Me Too movement uh, within the South Asian community and the impact has been exponential. And I guess... Along with that impact comes a lot of pressure and, and speak a bit about that and and all of the range of, of emotions that you've had as you've seen this film grow. Well, it's been
1: phenomenal um, what this film has done, what the story of us um, sisters just sharing it in this big way. It's uh, it's 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 being it's a voice is giving a voice to others that can't um, speak for whatever reasons. So many people write to me on a daily basis. Like my inboxes are always full with messages of um, how this is their story and like how grateful they are for what my sisters and I have done. And um, the ripple effects that it's creating in in the healing of others Um in not just our culture but uh, many other cultures and um, I think it's it's it, it really did it pulled um, the rug off of this whole taboo topic which is uh, of sexual abuse right so it's allowing um, families for the first time it's allowing individuals for the first time to um, acknowledge that yes they have been, sexual abuse so there's conversations that are happening among siblings amongst parents i had this one woman come up to me and say i spilt the tea to my parents
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: those that write in yes they are um giving uh, my sisters and i um so much love and and all these accolades as uh, like the heroes or the flag bearers of justice and, and and all of that um it it just makes me want to do more. It makes me um, just connect even deeper with my inner self and ask, how do I take this further? Where do I take this further? How can this have even more impact? How can, how can I be in service to even help more lives out there as I do my own healing? So it's, it's, sometimes scary too because i bet it's so huge um well a lot of
0: responsibility right that can come along with that and judgment right Mm -hmm. so
1: there's a lot of
0: responsibility
1: and of course and as i take on more responsibility uh, you're opening yourself to more judgment and and that's okay so But it feels so beautiful and it's honoring at the same time. And I also want to add that as I heal, I do feel that my um, great grandmothers, my ancestors, like all the silenced voices behind me back there, generations and generations are healing and 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 I see um the the ripple effects moving forward the, like my daughter's lives and then the grandchildren and the future generations so it's just so humbling to be able to see the ripple effects that are uh ahe- ahead of me and what's behind me because this voice is the collective voice of all the silenced voices of over centuries
0: absolutely and, and it's that you know that that notion as we hear of be the change that we wish to see and and we cannot uncover um secrecies and unravel um hidden abuses and tragedies and traumas without putting a spotlight on them can we and and you have done you know such a magnificent job of turning tragedy and trauma into meaning and purpose and and really a life calling for you Mm, thank you what Jiti, as we close up here to anybody that's listening that has been the victim of anything horrific that is doubting themselves questioning themselves staying silent not knowing where to start not knowing what to do what advice do you have to give
1: well first and foremost you have to connect with yourself, there's an inner self inside all of us and um, when once um, one connects with that inner self there's um, there's a lot of knowingness, there's a lot of love, there's a lot of um, um, empathy and compassion that comes for self and if one doesn't have compassion and empathy for self it's it, <sighs> it's gonna be mucky out there to move forward. So in order to shed the shame and the blame, you have to have that connection, that awareness to self. So as you rise or as you awaken to move forward, you, can, you will be grounded to take those steps if you know what your truth is, if you know um, that you are not to blame, if you know that um, your path forward is the path that you must take because that is the voice that comes from inside. So trusting that, that knowingness, that voice inside, um, and, and healing, you, you, one has to, it's a must. The first and foremost thing you have to do is start your own journey of healing. and um, And the step to that
0: is knowing your truth, what is your truth, right? wonderful wise words and and thank you so much Eti, for all that you are doing to shed light and attention on a very important conversation um, oh. the root meaning of the word passion derives from the latin pati which means to suffer And the things that we're passionate about are not simply the things that make us feel good or come alive. They're also those that we're willing to fight for and we suffer for our purpose. And so thank you to you on behalf of every little girl that's gone through trauma and adversity for suffering and taking that suffering into such a meaningful purpose.
1: Thank you. And thank you for having
0: me. Thank you so much for tuning into Tartigrade Talks. If you've enjoyed our conversation, we would love for you to subscribe and consider sharing with a friend. We have a breadth of free resources designed to help you enhance your psychological health and wellness on our website, tardigradetalks.com. Thank you. And I hope you join us at the next episode. Wishing you psychological health, wellness, and resilience until next time.